As they're starting the offering, we're just going to show just a, a brief video, and it uh, addresses the topic of this morning's text, the connection between prayer and boldness. Take a peek at this video. You and I wrestle with this. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're alone mm-hmm. in wrestling with this. I think this is, yeah, pretty commonplace. Mm-hmm. So how do we... How do we get out of this? Like, how do we, yeah. how do we really, as disciples of Jesus, wow, like make yeah. disciples of Jesus, like share the gospel? See, I, see, I don't, I don't want to be too simplistic, but I really believe it's going to be a supernatural thing mm-hmm. as people gather together and pray for that courage. Mm-hmm. Like, what I see in Scripture is. And this is what has given me more of a peace about it. Because at first I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, <laughs> I shouldn't be a, afraid. But then, I, I don't know, last couple of years, the Lord's shown me like how, you know, Peter and John, how people were astonished by, mm-hmm. you know, their boldness. But then you see later on in that chapter how the believers were gathered together with them and praying for their courage. Mm. And I go, well, we don't really do that. Um, I see the Apostle Paul even saying, pray for me that I may speak, the, you know, preach this message boldly like I should. And so Paul is asking the church, pray for me. And I don't think we really do mm. that. And, mm. and again, I mean, I believe this is going to be, you know, like if you and I, I, I don't have this discussion very often mm. with people mm. and admit that and then have them admit it to me mm. and then you know, a lot of times it just ends right there yeah. because we don't believe in prayer enough mm. that I really believe something supernaturally would happen if we started praying for each other's boldness mm. and courage. Uh, today we're going to talk about the DNA of the early church. Now apparently, in my DNA, the ability to grow a beard is non-existent. I'm trying to support Justin Turner here. I haven't, you know... <laughs> Some of you, like, don't shave for two days and you look like a hairy beast. This is going on, like, 13 days, you know? And so I'm kind of supporting Justin Turner by not shaving till after the World Series. And, uh, yeah, well, it's not going very well. And, uh, and I'm still basking in the fact that I spent a week in Maui uh, the week before last, and um, life is good. Life is good. So let's get into our text, would you? Uh, the DNA of the early church, we're looking... In Acts chapter 4, uh, this is the seventh message in this series that we're doing in the book of Acts on the original church, and uh, we're going to try to get the first seven chapters in before Christmas. And we were, we're kidding about this DNA thing, but the DNA thing is kind of the rage. You know, for $79, you can pay someone to tell you that you're a European mutt. You know, because there's like 20 different things you've come from, what countries. I don't know how they figure that out. Um, you know, some of you are praying that there's some Indian in your blood if you're a college student because you want a scholarship uh, somewhere or you want to cash in on some casino somewhere. But uh, they tell you and they promise that you can uncover your ethnic mix, discover your distant relatives. What if your distant relative is like an axe murderer or somebody that's like, I don't know if I want to know that. And uh, they make all these promises. But more importantly, what was the DNA of the early church? What was, if you poke it, what did it bleed? And I believe that in this context, you're going to see two 
very distinct markers that characterize the early church. Now, we've looked at some lists, and we've looked at quite a bit, and it's like we're revisiting a little bit of this in this section, but it's interesting to me what he's not going to mention in this section. The DNA of the early church wasn't about buildings. It wasn't about budgets. It wasn't about um, organizational structures. But there are two characteristics, and my prayer today is that these two characteristics that we uncover in the text would be true of our church as well. So let's look at it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the messenger not confuse the message as we look at your today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Francis Chan gave us our first point in the video, and that was undaunted prayer undaunted prayer. They were courageous. The first DNA marker is they were courageous. They were undaunted in their ability to ask God for big things. We see that in verses 23 to 31. If you're wondering how to follow my sermon, get these notes out. If you don't have one, there's some in the back. Our our, uh, ushers can get that to you. And we'll look at first at the report, the response, the request, and then the results. Let's look at the report, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends, and we can translate that word companions or kindred spirits or their own people, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. What's the first thing they do after we're thrown in jail overnight, being interrogated by the religious leaders, what's the very first thing Peter and John do? They go and find their spiritual friends, their companions. In our church, that would be who's your people in your discipleship group, your e-group. Who, who are the people you're doing life with in your life group? And he, they got to go find them. And so I wanted, before we get any farther, I just want to make a shameless plug for getting tied in to a smaller group here. So if you're kind of a lone ranger, you know, you've been coming on Sundays for a while, but you're not plugged in. Uh, this is the chance for you to, to go deeper with a, a, a few other people in your life. And that's exactly, they go to those people. Now, they've been thrown in jail. Maybe they were roughed up physically, a little emotionally. Um, but out of that meeting with the Sanhedrin, we found out last week, they told them to do what? To not what? No more preaching. No more talking. Did you say don't sing? No, don't say anything. I said, don't sing, don't sing. No, no, I, I, I think you can sing. Just don't preach about Jesus, all right? And it's interesting what we might have done if we were those people or if we were in leadership trying to protect our leaders who were proclaiming uh, Jesus. Um, maybe we would say, hey, we can't let Peter and John be seen together. We got to, you know, get a big insurance policy out on them. Or maybe we got to get some beefy security guys to surround them. Or more commonly, what some churches might do or we might have been tempted to do is well, maybe we should just be a little less offensive about the message. Remember, these guys were pretty bold. What they essentially said to the Sanhedrin is, yep, you killed Jesus, you did, and why don't you repent? I mean, it was pretty basic, and if you're on the receiving end of that message, they're going, hey, don't talk about that. In fact, the people around them, are Jesus' popularity is growing, but the the discontentment of the religious establishment is growing equally. And so there's a crossroads, there's tension going on. And it all goes back to the healing of that lame beggar in chapter 3, right? And they're saying, these are uneducated fishermen. What are you listening to them about where you're going to get your theology? Uh, And so they go from idle threats to kind of roughing them up to saying, shut up. And Peter and John had no business 
no plan to shut up, did they? They are said they're undeterred. And so they were granted the privilege of suffering for Christ. They embraced that. They weren't uh, cowed by that. And I should just explain to us, if you're going to be bold for Jesus, there are times you're going to suffer for that. Uh, when you proclaim Christ, it's, it's, it's a stumbling block to some people. And sometimes people misunderstand your motives, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's their response? Well, they go immediately to prayer. In this prayer, they pray for a few things, and it's several verses before they actually get to their request. But we see the first thing they're praying about is God's sovereignty. We see God's sovereignty is restated in verse 24 in their response. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, underline that in your, in your, in your Bible, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice there's a big spontaneous prayer meeting, not organized by them. The people around them says, we, we, we've got to pray, just like Francis Chan saying, bold prayers. And he uses the sovereign Lord. The reason I ask you to underline it, that's the word despot or the English word despot where we get our word absolute master, unchallenged power. Only appears five other times in the New Testament. It's not the same uh, word for Lord uh, that we find in the rest of the New Testament, which is curios. And so the bottom line is, God's sovereignty has been established since before creation, right? And so the Sanhedrin can utter all the threats they want, but they're not going to back down. They're not going to be intimidated by that. And I think sometimes we as believers, we sometimes get intimidated, right? When someone's forceful with us, back down, pipe down, you Jesus freak. Um, why is it that you're talking about Jesus all the time? And if it's a part of your DNA, you can't not talk about Jesus, Right? Um, so what if we really believed that God is sovereign? I know we believe intellectually that He's sovereign. He's in charge. He's in control. He's the, he's the uh, in uh, Mexican terms, He's the El Jefe. He's the Lord of our lives. We understand all of that, right? Right? But if we believe that, when is it easier to believe that He is sovereign? Just in, as we go through life, when is it easier to believe that fact than at other times? When is it easier? When things are going great, oh, yeah, I'm all God, I'm all in, yeah, I'm a Christian, Woo, yeah, we're going, right? Kind of like I'm all in for USC until yesterday, and then it was a bad day. It was a really bad day for you football fans. They got drummed by our friends from South Bend. And so it's easy to believe in the sovereignty of God when all things are good. How about when things aren't so good? So what's amazing is they're talking about being all in for God and His sovereignty, even though they just spent the night in the jail. Now, a jail in that time period is not, you know, like a little retreat at club fed. I mean, we're talking, you know, rats and sewage smell and ventilation's non-existent, and it's just stinky and cold and damp, and you don't know if you're going to get out of there alive. And yet they elevate Jesus Christ, that God is sovereign. Then, the next part of their prayer, they talk about Jesus' suffering being predicted, verses 25 to 28. So, it's an interesting prayer. They're coming out of jail, but the group is praying about God's sovereignty and then reciting a short history to God as if He doesn't know what has just happened, reminding everybody about what's just gone down. Here's how it goes in verses 25 to 28. "'Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit,' Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city, 
there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're praying to God, and it's actually coming. They're praying the Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. They're re-praying this prophetic reference to Jesus Christ and His uh, future suffering. And they're saying, Peter's bringing up this Scripture. They're, they're being used by God, and they're saying that you're going to use evil men's intent to accomplish God's purpose. God often takes evil men's intent to accomplish His higher purpose. You saw it with Joseph, didn't you? You know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Write this verse down, Psalm 76.10, the wrath of man shall praise thee. God uses the wrath of men, the people who are going to condemn Jesus Christ, to crucify Him, thinking that they're, they're done with all this, and yet God's still at work. Now, He calls out four groups of people, two general groups, Gentiles and and uh, people of Israel, kind of, that means all of us, apparently. And then, but two people specifically, he's calling out who? Two people specifically in that sex. Who's he, who are they praying about? Herod and Pilate. And I think it's because those two, and it's hard to not, for me not to call them knuckleheads because God used them, but these, these guys essentially lacked the courage of their convictions, and let the crowd dictate their response. By the way, gentlemen, just a sidebar. has nothing to do with this text. When your wife, let's refer like the pilot's wife, when your wife has an intuition about something, it's been my experience, you ought to listen to her. You ought to follow her intuition. It'll keep you out of hot water. If Pilate would have listened to his wife, maybe the whole course of human history would be changed. But of course, we know that wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. He, it was predestined. That's the word that was used in the text. You see that in Romans 8, 29 to 30, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Ephesians 1, 5. And it reminds us no matter what happens in the circumstances of life, God's still in control. Now, that's hard for some of us when you think that your life is out of control and you're wondering how why God could be in control when your life right now feels like a disaster. I was talking to a, a lady, who's been, she's been coming for about two months, and she was very clear, we have not given you any information on our church, here's our first names, and they were kind of having fun with it. Uh, and I said, well, have you filled out the care journal? She said, nope. I said, oh, okay. Uh, would you like to be in a life group? Maybe. Okay. And, and so it was kind of an interesting conversation. And, uh, and uh, as we talked, it was interesting that um, both of their, their, their um, husbands don't want anything to do with God, but they've been sitting in the fourth row coming first hour for about two months now. And they are beginning to warm up to the fact that maybe God has a bigger plan for what's going on in their marriages and their relationship with God. So, what we see in this section here is that He made everything, He controls everything, and He has a purpose for everything. He made it, He spoke it, He decided it. Let's go on. What's their actual request? Now they get to a request. They ask God for something in verses 29 and 30. 
And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the threats of these religious leaders, and grant to your servants to continue to speak. I mean, help us to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for three specific things after this long intro that you're sovereign, that Jesus is going to suffer. Now, here's what we're asking for, God. Three things. Number one, take note of the threats. But they say it in such a way that they're not too worried about these threats. It's like, it's like a gnat that's kind of like buzzing around your head, like, I'm, I'm, we're not going to quit preaching, but just remind you, God, that they're threatening us. Now let's get on to more important stuff. Number two, grant us boldness to speak. In male terms, it's like, man up. It's time to take care of business. Um, and they knew that this persecution they're facing now is not going to get easier. So they're praying in such a way, knowing that even as a group that it could go pretty poorly for them. But they're not going to be intimidated by it. They're not going to be swayed by it. They're not going to decide what they're going to do based on their external circumstances. They're going to trust God. And this is where the rubber meets the road with your theology. When you say that Jesus is Lord, when you believe that God is sovereign, here's where the rubber meets the road. It's when you believe that in spite of not because of. Do you see the difference? There are many times in your life, it doesn't go as planned. You lost your job. Maybe you went through a horrible divorce. Maybe uh, you've lost a family member. Maybe there, you've got crazy neighbors who are harassing you. Whatever you're going through in life, and by the way, you think every one of those have happened in, with one of the guy in some people I'm dealing with right now, all the things I just mentioned. You've got to trust God in spite of that stuff. Because it's easy to trust God because of when we count our blessings, name them one by one, but it's in the difficult times. When you've had a surgery and it's not gotten any better, when that back of yours still aches, when that hip still doesn't work, when that knee is not flexible, when you've prayed and prayed and prayed for restoration, for a broken relationship, and they, the other person has no desire to make it right, and then it really it really challenges, do we believe that God can use all of that in the in spite of, not the because of? It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, right? They're going to face certain death if they don't bow down to that idol. And they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, hey, you can take us down. We may burn, but we're not going to bow down. We believe, and I think they believe that God would protect them. Or as Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And so the third thing they pray for is they say, they ask that God would keep showing up by doing miracles in the name of Jesus. Now, notice they're not saying that we can do more miracles. They're saying, Jesus, you be lifted up, you be proclaimed. It's not our power, it's your power, and keep showing up so people will be pointed to Jesus. If, if I could have one prayer for us as a church, it's just that Jesus would keep showing up and that He'd be lifted up, that He'd show up and we lift Him up. We give the glory to Him. So would you write this down? They prayed for positive, they, instead of praying for positive outcomes around them, they prayed for a bold spirit within them. Instead of praying for a positive outcome around them, they prayed for a bold spirit within them. 
Now, that's a hard prayer because I want nice things to happen to me. I want good things to happen to me. But what happens around me is less important than what God is doing in me and inside of me. Now, when I look at a text like this and I see what they prayed for, I'm not sure those would be the top three things I would have been praying for. Had I had just been thrown into jail, being muzzled, you know, intimidated, kind of shook down, like, shut up, don't talk anymore, it's going to go badly for you. I might have prayed for some different things. Think about what they didn't pray for. This is very instructive. What's one thing they didn't pray for? Huh? They didn't pray to be released. Now, they did get released, but, you know, they'd be in and out of jail. You know, Paul's going to be in and out of jail. He's going to be an ex-con the rest of his life. They, the, the one that surprised me, because I kind of, I don't get mad. I just get even. They, they didn't pray for judgment on these religious leaders. You know, they didn't pray that kind of David imprecatory prayer from the Psalms, like, slay the evildoers. They didn't do that. Uh, they didn't pray for their trials to be discontinued. They didn't pray for protection. They prayed for power. They didn't ask for safety. They asked for the salvation of other people. They didn't pray for help, but they wanted people to be healed. They didn't pray for money. They asked for miracles. And they continued to ask God that He would do those things that would get people's attention and point people to Jesus. That is awesome. That's the kind of prayer. And so, my question to you is, if we think about undaunted prayer, what is it that maybe you've put on the back burner that you've got to elevate and say, okay, God, I'm asking for something big. I'm asking for something big. And maybe it's something you've been praying for a while, but you've been maybe reticent to ask God to actually do it. So, I want to give you three little suggestions to be able to pray with boldness. You know, in the bookstores, they have, you know, computers for dummies, internet for dummies, and they got every kind of, you know, cooking for dummies. Well, this is boldness for dummies, 101. Let me give you three little, three little things, okay? First of all, pray that God would spur you to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. First little principle. Spur, ask God to spur you to say something when it e would be much easier to say nothing. You know, I guess it was about oh, a little over a year ago, I preached a sermon where I mentioned like, you know, divine opportunities and seek those out. And maybe the next time you get on a plane, you know, you know take the earphones out, put your book away, and maybe try to engage a conversation with the guy next to you. So I'm saying that story uh, a Thursday night, and a guy in our church, Casey Chandler, says, I've been meaning to show you that picture because over a year ago, you challenged us to do that. The next day I got on a plane, I was all prepared to do it. I sat down, and this is what the guy next to me did. He pulled his jacket up over his head and zipped it up and apparently did not want to have a conversation with me. <laughs> but I liked that Casey was trying to do it. That was awesome. He wanted to have the conversation. Apparently, his buddy had nothing to do with it. So now, fast forward the story to 10 days ago. We're on our way home from Maui. I'm going to be getting on a plane. Now, I was ready to be in my plane mode. That's when I share Jesus because I'll have the outdoor. The way we do it, my wife gets an aisle seat. I get an aisle seat. We have two people captive on either side of us. She engages to the right. I engage to the left. It's awesome. It's awesome. All right? So I'm ready for that, but we get to this pizza place. It's called Prison Pizza. It's on the way to the airport, 
Awesome pizza, by the way. Uh, but there's no place to see it. And we've got, you know, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, my kids, and so there's six of us. There's one guy sitting at a, like a tip table that, that could seat like eight, and he's sitting by himself. So I boldly, in my own self-interest, say, hey, would you mind if we, we just could sit with you? We're on our way to the airport. We're going to order some pizza. He goes, oh, that's sure. I go, I want to make a disclaimer. I have a three and a five-year-old with me. He goes, oh, that'll be cool. I said, I hope so. Um, <laughs> And so we sit down. Now, he, I didn't know. I just wanted to have some pizza. I'm thinking, I'm not thinking this is a, you know, a divine appointment. I just want some pizza. I'm going to enjoy my grandkids. And we're, but my wife, little Evangela, she just starts talking. And he's like, chatty Kathy. And they're like, and I'm kind of a little bit annoyed. Like, come on, this is our last night. It's with our family. And finally, my wife had had enough of it. And she just nudges me and she whispers, honey, this is a divine appointment. She's using her own words against me, right? <laughs> and I kind of wised up, and yeah, it was a divine appointment. What was I thinking? I'm ready to do it and be divine appointment on the plane. The divine appointment was right there at the table. And I quickly repented and said, sorry, Lord. And then I, the last probably 20 minutes, I engaged the conversation with him, found out all about his family and talked a little bit about Jesus and and it was a great day, and I encourage him to go visit my friend Ricky Ryan at Kumlani Chapel, and, and God was good. God showed up. But it took my wife to nudge me to do the right thing. So sometimes God's put someone in your life that gives you that little nudge. Don't be mad at them. Maybe that's God's way of just tapping on the shoulder. Hey, this is your chance. Speak up, all right? So where do we need to mold this? It's number two. Number little, hint number two to be bold. Um, don't place rants on Facebook. Could you just not do that? <laughs> don't rant about your pet topic on Facebook and then talk about and come to ABF on Sunday. Yeah, that's just not cool. Don't do that. You know, instead, here, here's a little phrase. Boldness without the Holy Spirit is bluntness. So if you're going to be bold, make sure it's saturated and marinated by the Holy Spirit nudging you, not making a Facebook rant. Remember, Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. You can be bold, do it lovingly. Do it lovingly. And then number three, boldness for dummies. Remember, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Remember, unbelievers are the captives, not the enemies here. Unbelievers that you're sharing Christ with, they're the captives. They're the ones who need to be set free. They're not the enemy. Remember, Jesus' beef is with religious leaders who are hypocritical, not unbelieving seekers. And I just want to, again, give courage to those of you who come every Sunday and that you are in process. This is awesome because this is a safe place for you to engage questions about your faith. Now, I didn't ask permission for me to, him to do this, or he doesn't even know I'm going to do it, but Bill, just wave your hand. Just this guy right there. Just talk to him. If you're somewhere in process trying to figure out where faith and life intersects, we have this little private thing we're going to start this week for people who want to ask questions about faith-related issues. See him about that, okay? Enough said. And then the other thing is sometimes you, I want to be bold, but I don't have any tools. So this morning, this is a God thing. A guy came up and said, you know, people 
want to share their faith, but they don't always have tools. And he talked to Pastor Scott. He said, I want to put some tools back here on the back. And by the way, all those books back there are free. Take them anytime. Take them, take them, take them. I keep stocking them. But he left a couple of tools. So some people, I got friends who don't speak English. This is like the gospel, the, Jesus, the life of Jesus, Jesus filled mini version, like in like nine different languages. Take one of those. It's got Arabic. It's got, I can't even pronounce these words. French, Francais. Um, I got that one. But here's another cool tool. It's life's most important question. Just a way to be bold by just using little tools that might help somebody. By the way, if you are going to be bold with your waitress and share Christ, don't leave a lousy tip, all right? Just don't, and don't put a business card down and come to ABF when you leave them nothing. That's not good, all right? Some tools that might help you to be bold. Number four, what were the results of this prayer? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So, I don't want to get on a big theological rabbit trail here, but this is called a theophany. It's where there's a visible representation of the presence of God, and God showed up. And interestingly enough, that earthquake, that little shaking was located just with them, not around the whole city. And the more the ground shook around them, the more unshakable they became. And so the presence of God in this context means to them, hey, I can move mountains, but I got your back. I am unshakable, and I will give you that courage. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are saying, I'm a little confused. How many times are they going to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Remember, the book of Acts is a transitional book. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time, like Moses or David and Jacob, and be empowering for that situation and then would be removed. But once you accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit comes in instantaneously and you have what Jesus predicted before He left. You have the Helper who resides inside of you. This book of Acts is now indicating that when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit will be present. And I believe that for some of us, what we need more of is not more of the Holy Spirit. You've got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get when, at the moment of salvation. But what you do need and what the book of Ephesians and other books talk about is being filled with the Spirit. In other words, being empowered or controlled. It's not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how much of, of you the Holy Spirit has. It's a control issue, not an amount issue, all right? And the, the word filling kind of confuses us at times uh, with that. Now, that boldness that was seen, now remember, these are the same disciples who fall asleep three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. They can't even keep their eyes open. These are the same disciples who ran to the four corners during Jesus' you know, uh, trials and uh, during His crucifixion. This same group of disciples, these 12, these, this motley crew, uh, 11 actually, uh, you know, Judas committed suicide, that leads the gospel in the book of Acts to be spread to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. We're going to see that through the study of the book of Acts. That's the boldness that happened because Jesus made a difference in their life. That's ingredient number one. Now, this next one, we're going to go a little faster on this, but that's the first DNA marker, undaunted prayer. The second is, and by the way, this is kind of like this one coin, two flip sides. You wouldn't see that these would go together. But the second one is uncommon generosity. In the first, they were courageous. In the second, they were being compassionate. And in spite of all this mounting opposition, there is something unique about the, 
the body, the early church, and how kind and generous and caring and compassionate they were. And just if I could brag about you, you are that, you're those kind of people. You're so kind. You're so nice. I just see how you are kind and generous to one another, and I love being a part of that body. By the way, sometimes people preach on passages because they want their, their church to be better at that. that that's, not, that's not what we're about today. I sincerely believe that you embody both of these in the text. So what is this stew of generosity? What was the environment? What was the ozone that kind of, you know, made this happen? Well, the four things. Number one, unity was pervasive. Look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and one said, and no one said any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Remember that? Pastor Scott preached on this in two. So it's kind of, it's interesting. Two times now they bring up this whole uh, everything in common. It wasn't just a few. I'll just remind you, it was not a mandatory thing, but people bought into this idea that I'm going to share what I have. I'm going to be generous. And this evidence of their unity was evidence that they didn't, they didn't let stuff own them. Cars, houses, jobs, not my stuff. I don't believe that this is the mandate for Christian socialism, as some have said. I believe it's a temporary phenomena. As Scott already covered, you can check that message out from a couple weeks ago. But I do have this observation. It is easier to give everything to Jesus when you have nothing, right? I was thinking about this. When I'm 20 years old, I'm on bio, I don't own a house, I barely have a car that runs, I'm trying to pay my bills, and we went to a, a chapel, so we were, give all to Jesus. I'm going, great. If I gave all to Jesus, maybe I'd get to go on a mission trip where I could, you know, be in a foreign land. Or, and then life happens, right? And you get married, then you get a house, and you get a job, and you get a car, and then you get a bank account, and then you have IRAs, and then you have deferred retirement, and then you get bonuses, and all of a sudden, life got a little more complicated. You know the truth? Sometimes I wish I was just living much more simply. There was something, how do I say it? There was something that was different. When I, was, when I became a pastor 39 years ago, I got paid, hold your seat, 500 dollars a month. I was a blessed man. I was 25 hours a week. I got married. I'm going to seminary. I don't know how I'm going to pay for seminary. My wife didn't have a job yet. And my rent was $260 a month. Over 50% of my income went to that, and I was tithing. So to say that money was tight was an understatement. But you know what? God showed up. Somehow we were fed. Now, I know how we're fed. I think all the junior high parents felt sorry for us, and we had dinner. We ate one really good meal every Sunday. We just went from house to house, and we were happy as clams. By the way, we're pretty happy right now as well. But all I'm saying is sometimes we say we'll give all, but I admit the more you have, the harder it is to actually live that out in reality and to let go of all the stuff that God's blessed you with. Number two, Jesus was preeminent. That's another part of the stew. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. By the way, this generosity that happens is in the context of bold preaching about who? Jesus and the resurrection. I've said it before. You know this. If there are two theological concepts that Christianity 
rises and falls on. That is the deity of Jesus Christ. He's just not a prophet. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you have to come up to the conclusion he's either a lord, liar, lunatic. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul reemphasizes that. If, if there's no resurrection, we got nothing. We got nothing, right? And so for those of you in process trying to figure out Christianity, those are a couple of the topics we may end up addressing in this, this little uh, uh, study group that we'll put together. Jesus was preeminent. It's the power of His resurrection. And if we don't have that, we do have a hopeless religion, friends. That's why you got to know what you believe and why you believe it. It's all about Jesus. Third part of the stew, grace was prevalent, and grace was upon them all. What I get from that is it permeated how they lived, how they treated one another. They're not only generous with one another, they apparently were really gracious with one another. Um, it is tough sometimes for us to extend grace to people that bug you that are not kind to you, that rub you the wrong way. I get it. Grace is tough sometimes, isn't it? But it says that's what characterized that fellowship, grace. So as I'm studying this passage, one of the cool things is when you preach like every eight weeks, I got a long prep period. I don't have to be ready every five days like Pastor Scott does. I had like five weeks plus. So I've been marinating on this text for a while, and anytime I preach, I say, God, give me something that I apply, not that I just preached to the crowd, but what is something you're speaking to me about? It wasn't about boldness. I'm pretty bold. I'm not afraid to talk about Jesus, but I kid you not, I'm, this is about 10 days. I'm sitting. I'm up early. I'm watching the waves break out of my window looking at, at the ocean, and every morning I'm marinated on this passage. And I got to that phrase, and grace was extended to all. Oh, what a dagger in my heart. Because I got to admit to you, sometimes I'm not that gracious. I want to be. I'm passionate about Jesus. But sometimes I leave an emotional wake of carnage behind me because I told you the truth, but I kind of trampled you in the, in the process. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be better than that. But I realize the same sovereign God that made you uniquely, made me uniquely, and it's going to take His ability to change me from maybe not being so harsh sometimes to speak the truth in love. Now, some of you go, well, John, you know, you're, you're, you're not so harsh. You're, you're just an emotional beanbag. I, I get that too. I, I get that, you know. Because, you know, thank goodness this has nothing to do with marriage or parenting or kids. I'd be in a puddle of tears, as you know. But in this particular case, what it also spoke to me about is, I bet you there's some other people sitting in this audience that are kind of like me. You're bold, you love Jesus, you're passionate, but sometimes you just got to be more gracious. And so let's just band together and commit to one another. We're going to be bold, but we're going to be gracious in how we share the love of Jesus Christ with people. That's my prayer for me, and I hope it's a prayer for you as well. Fourth part of the stew, there was unselfish sharing. Unselfish sharing was practiced, verses 34 to 37. 
A pattern emerges. I'll look at a quick problem, and we'll give you a positive example at the end. And again, this is the same thing Pastor Scott already covered, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time. Look at verses 34 and 35. They were unselfish in this pattern. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. A couple things. It was voluntary, but they looked out for each other. Now, there's a problem. Why is it that we tend to not be generous? Well, maybe it's because we're selfish. We don't want to be inconvenienced, or maybe it's time because we don't have margin, and, and maybe we have the wrong perspective. We think we're the owners of the money that we own or the stuff we have. Actually, we're not the owners. Remember, we're the stewards. We're the managers. Or maybe we're fearful that we're worried that if we'll have enough if we give it away or help somebody else. You know what's awesome is there's many of you who, who read this and you go, I want to be gracious. I want to give. Uh, what you're doing in feeding people who don't have a meal to eat in our Canal Valley meal program is awesome. But I want to read you two kind of convicting parallel verses here. Just let it sink in. From James 2, 15 to 16, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Phew, that's a bit convicting. How about this one? 1 John 3, 17, but whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? What are we going to do about that, friends? We have a little piece of the Canaria Valley feeding program. So let me give you a very simple, practical application. Believe it or not, there are people who have come to our church as a result of that feeding program and, and word of mouth who have been and are still homeless. And you don't know it. And they're living among us. They're sleeping in their cars. They're couch surfing. Do you have a spare bedroom? I'm not asking for a big program. I'm saying there are a few of you who say, I've got a spare bedroom, and if you find someone who's going to sleep on the street or in a car, I'm willing. And by the way, I know there's all kinds of what-ifs. I got kids. What, uh, what if they're crazy people? What if they rob me? I get it. I get it. But I'm telling you, these are people coming to our church. They've found Jesus, and they're down on their luck. And maybe there's a handful of folks that say, I got a room. Just, you know, and I'm not asking you for months or years. I'm asking you for days. For the weekend, for a few days, just on the, on the side, come and talk to me. And let's talk about maybe this is, you're an answer to one of these prayers. Now, that's the problem. What's the positive example? Let's wrap up with this, verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Isn't this great? This is the Barnabas that vouches for Paul uh, a little later in Acts 9. Uh, this is the Barnabas who means son of encouragement, all right? He went as Joseph initially. This is the Barnabas who's a Levite, which means not all the religious leaders hated Jesus. He was a religious leader who bought in. He's a native of Cyprus, which is very interesting because on the very first missionary, the very first place they go to is where? To the island of Cyprus. And that's where it all begins. He goes back to his hometown to say Jesus made a difference. By the way, that's a little principle. 
It's always easier to go tell Jesus some other place. But talking about Jesus where you live, that's powerful. And then he's related to Mark. That's why Mark gets involved. He's also uh, his sister's house, the meeting place of the Jerusalem church. We see that in Acts 12. There is a falling out with Paul we find out about later. But here's the the summary of his life in Acts 11.24, a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And so the bottom line, before he was a leader, he was a giver. Before he was a leader, he was a giver. That's the Barnabas. Now, next week, you're going to see the exact opposite of Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. And I don't want to give it away, but it's like a good movie. Somebody's going to die next week. Somebody's going to die. Hold on to your seat. Come back Thursday. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the fact that you've called us to do two things, to be bold in our prayer, and to be generous with what you've given us. Help us to have that undaunted prayer and to have uncommon generosity. May that be true of us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pour out our praise for things that make a difference in our life. And the most important thing in our life is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So my prayer for you this week is that you'd be undaunted in your prayer. Pray courageous prayers, big, bold prayers. And secondly, that you'd continue to be uncommon in your generosity to one another and the people that cross your paths. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.